last Lord's Day, I turned 48 years old. And because of that, I have been doing a lot of thinking, a lot of meditating, a lot of reflecting on the last 48 years of my life. This month marks 30 years ago a time when I was preparing to go off to college in the fall of 1978. It was a time of uncertainty. It was a time of nervousness. It was a time in which, as an unbeliever and not having come to Christ until my freshman year in college, about halfway in between, did I begin to understand all of the challenges that I would face as a collegian at Arkansas State University. I was not raised in a Christian home, and so therefore I did not have the kind of training, biblically, that I'm going to give to you today. And so that has caused me in my own life to think about and to reflect upon the absolute importance of biblical training by parents toward their young people, their children. I also recently had a conversation that caused me to think even more about these things. I talked with a friend of mine who's a church leader of a large church here in West Little Rock, and he told me that their church on a particular Sunday began to broach the subject of sexual sin, sexual immorality, promiscuity, pornography. And apparently after the teaching time, there was a survey handed out and the congregation filled out the survey. And this friend of mine told me very disturbingly that eight out of ten men who filled out the survey from this very large church in West Little Rock Eight out of ten indicated that they had at least, at some point in their life, involved themselves in pornography. Eight out of ten. And that well over 50% of them had recently delved into pornography. That it wasn't just something of their past. There was also a disturbing percentage of females who were also viewing pornography. He indicated to me that there were even people based upon the survey and the questions that said, eight of them apparently, that they were even at that moment contemplating committing adultery against their spouse. And that really, really jolted me. Because as I heard the rehearsing of those percentages, I realized again and again and again that it is only by the grace of God that I myself am standing here today as your pastor teacher who is above reproach in this area of sexual sin, 
but one who came from, as I'm sure many of you have, a non-Christian home and who 30 years ago was entering college as a young person facing the kind of temptations that have only exponentially brought ourselves to our own day. This is a major topic, and because of that, I did not want to preach that message tonight, but wanted to expose as many of you this morning as I could to the title and the substance of a message that I want to bring to you from Proverbs chapter 23. And I'd like to invite you to turn there, Proverbs chapter 23, in a message I'd like to title, The Joy of Seeing My Children Walk in the Truth. The Joy of Seeing My Children Walk in the Truth. From Proverbs chapter 23, verses 22 to 35. Follow along with me as I read. Proverbs 23, verses 22 to 35. King Solomon writes to his sons, and he says, Listen to your father who begot you, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy truth, and do not sell it. Acquire wisdom, and instruction, and understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice, and he who sires a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and your mother be glad, and let her rejoice who gave birth to you. Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. For a harlot is a deep pit, and an adulterous woman is a narrow well. Surely she lurks as a robber and increases the faithless among men. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter perverse things and you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. 3 John 4 says that I have no greater joy than this, than to see my children walk in the truth. Those are Solomon's sentiments exactly here in Proverbs 23. The greatest joy, the greatest joy on earth, in my opinion, 
is to know that your children love the Lord Jesus Christ. They've repented from sin and turned to Him by faith. And they are currently walking in the truth as a pattern of their life. No greater joy. Especially no greater joy for someone like me who was not raised in a Christian family and who for the last 30 years has by the mercy of Christ been brought to him by faith so that when it was the Lord's time for Beth and me to have these eight children of ours, I could be in Christ. I could have the opportunity to begin at the earliest of these children's days to show them Christ and the truth from the Word of God. You may not have had that experience. Or you may have been like me, not having grown up in a Christian home and not having a mentor, not having a friend, not having a father, like these children are being exhorted in the Word of God. But praise God that in His grace, even though I didn't have this Christian home in which I was brought up, I did have the Word of God, by the grace of God, given to me before I entered a very, very challenging time in my life. When I was first in college, I pledged a fraternity, the Sig Epps. And over those first few months of my freshman year, as the Lord was drawing me to Himself through no one's witness, but through a Bible that someone had given me that I put on the shelf of my dorm room. And I had, as soon as I saw the temptations that were before me, a drawing of Christ toward Him and away from those things. To the point where, shortly after pledging that fraternity, Christ pulled me out of it. He pulled me out of the alcoholism. He pulled me out of the temptations sexually to come to a place where Christ was my greatest desire. And within about a six-month period of time, during my freshman year, I was totally transformed. My life was very, very different than the road that I assumed I was going to be on. I was, even without a human father being led by my heavenly father to a place of being taught and nurtured and matured through the word of God. And I praise God for that. And as I continued to mature in my faith, as small as it was, I desired the word of God so voraciously that the Lord gave me people and opportunities and ministries in which I grew to a point where, as I married and as we began to have children, the Lord had given me both mentors and friends and disciplers so that I could begin to parent these children as Solomon dictates in these wonderful Proverbs. And as I have been preaching through the Proverbs now for some eight years here at the Bible Church, on Sunday evenings, I've become more and more aware of the need for all of the children of God, all of us who are children of God, 
including our own physical children, to continue to walk in the truth and to continue to avail ourselves of these precious promises that we have before us. And as I've come now in our verse-by-verse exposition of the book of Proverbs, I've come to realize afresh and anew the warnings that Solomon gives his own sons that are as fresh and as relevant today for us as they were when he first penned them. Notice what Solomon says in verse 22 of Proverbs 23. Listen to your father who begot you, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Solomon is telling his sons and his daughters, of course, that the greatest gift that you as a child, as a young adult, could give your parents is to listen to them. To listen to them. And negatively speaking, not to despise them, even when they are old. Even when your mother is in her old age, not to despise her, but to continue to listen to them. Which means, of course, that you are children to them in one sense when you're under their roof and your children to them in another sense once you are grown and gone but you are still in that sense to listen to them and not to despise them even when they continue to remind you of the truth and surely if they are faithful they will and what is it about the truth that they value, that they want you to value. Notice what he says in verse 23. Buy it. Buy truth. Using a term of commerce in that day, that means acquire it. Work for it. Labor for it. It's as though you are laboring in your job to acquire money so that you can buy the things that you want in life. And Solomon says... If there is something to work for, to labor for, to buy, to acquire at the highest level, it is the truth of the Word of God. Buy truth. And then he says, and do not, what? Sell it. Acquire it and never give it up. In fact, notice what he says back in chapter 3. This is the same kind of idea. In chapter 3, verse 13, How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares with her. You know, if there's something that you ought to work hard for in your job, it ought to be to acquire something that's greater than gold, that's greater than silver, that is greater than precious jewels, because nothing can compare to her. And what is it? Lady Wisdom. The wisdom of the Word of God. Long life, verse 16, is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who hold her fast. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. 
By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps were broken up and the skies dripped with dew. My son, let them not vanish from your sight. Keep sound wisdom and discretion so they will be life to your soul and adornment to your neck. Then you will walk in your way securely and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden fear, nor of the onslaught of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. That's something you want to buy. That's something you want to acquire. And you never, my friends, want to sell this, ever. No matter how tempted you are about those things which make it appear on a human level to be more valuable than the wisdom of the Word of God. Don't be fooled. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father. Listen to the pathos in Solomon's voice. And give attention that you may gain understanding. For I give you sound teaching. Do not abandon my instruction. When I was a son to my father, and who was Solomon's father? David tender and the only son in the sight of my mother, and who was his mother? Bathsheba. Then he taught me and said to me, this is what David said to Solomon, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. And then here it is, verse 5, acquire wisdom, buy wisdom, acquire understanding, buy it. Do everything you can to work for it so that when you get the wages that you need, you are able to buy this. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, that is wisdom, and she will guard you. Love her and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is what? Acquire it. That's the beginning of it. You're not going to profit from it unless you first buy it. And with all your acquiring, get understanding. Prize her. Prize her. And she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a garland of grace. She will present you with a crown of beauty. Poetic words that speak of availing yourself, of acquiring by every means possible through all of your diligent efforts and your tireless labor to hold on to the Word of God and don't sell it. Back to Proverbs 23. Buy truth and do not sell it. And then this, get wisdom and instruction and understanding. By the way, those are the, the three very terms that Solomon uses in chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, to open up the entirety of the Proverbs, and he uses the same three words, and he's just saying over and over and over again, get these things, get these things, buy these things, acquire these things, and you will live a long life. And oh, if you do that, if you do that, young person, if you do that, notice the visceral response of your parents. Verse 24, the father of the righteous, that's the righteous son, will greatly rejoice. No greater joy. No no greater joy on the earth 
The father of the righteous son or the righteous daughter will greatly rejoice, and he who sires or births a wise son will be glad in him. Oh, there's no greater joy than to see your children making the right choices spiritually. Verse 25, let your father and your mother be glad. And let her, that is your mother, rejoice who gave birth to you. And of course, contrastingly, there's no greater sorrow than to see your children walking after falsehood, deceived, choosing a path of unrighteousness. No greater sorrow. And what would it be? What would it be that Solomon would say here in chapter 23, even from a negative reinforcement, and often these Proverbs are teaching us, warning us by way of negative reinforcement. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't go there. Don't stay on that path. And there are two of them listed in this text. Number 1, verses 26 through 28 Stay away from sexual immorality. Don't give yourself to sexual promiscuity. And secondly, verses 29 to 35, don't give yourself to drunkenness. Don't give yourself to drunkenness. Let's look at the first one. Verse 26. Give me your heart, my son. Do you hear that pathos? Do you hear that visceral response on the part of a dad? Give me your heart. Give me your will. Maybe that's a better translation. Give me your will, for it is in your will, son, that I know that you will do the right thing. You will make the right choices. Give me your will, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. I want your heart and I want your eyes. Why? Why? I mean, why would he say in verses 15 and 16 of this same chapter, My son, if your heart is wise, my own heart also will be glad. And my inmost being will rejoice. What are you going to bring me to for my innermost joy when your lips speak what is right? Your lips, your eyes, your heart, the totality of your being, your will, the very constitution that motivates you to think and act and perceive and reason and walk and do I want to delight in you and I want you to delight in my ways. Why? Because Solomon, and surely Solomon, knows the wretchedness of sexual immorality. Verse 27. For a harlot is a deep pit, and an adulterous woman is a narrow well. Surely she lurks as a robber and increases the faithless among men. Solomon is warning 
in a very graphic way the dangers of sexual promiscuity. Some commentators will even liken this phrase, deep pit or narrow well, to the idea of ultimate destruction. Destruction being depicted as a deep pit, something for which you could never extricate yourself. A narrow well, something for which you've fallen into and it is so narrow you cannot squeeze out of it. And even some commentators like the revered Bruce Waltke and Tremper Longman even suggest the possibility that it's not speaking of judgment here with these metaphors, but maybe even with the female anatomy. That if you think as a person, as a man, as a son, that you're going to get away with what you pleasure in, what you desire, you need to understand that even in the sexual act, it is as though you are going into a deep pit. A narrow well. Son, don't do it. Don't do it. This is what the Proverbs speak of when it speaks of the adulterous woman. A a harlot is a prostitute and an adulterous woman is like a a foreigner, someone who isn't your wife. It it could be anyone. It could be someone from outside Israel. It could be someone who is within Israel who is not your wife. And they would be an adulterer to you. And the book of Proverbs has much to say about this. Look back at chapter 2 of the book of Proverbs. Chapter 2. This is very graphic. The wisdom that Solomon is pleading for his sons to acquire, to buy, and not to sell is not just wisdom to fatten up your head. It's not just so that you can have some kind of intellectual buzz, some idea that you are smarter than the rest of the world outside the children of Israel. Not at all. It is practical wisdom and it is for this purpose. Look at chapter 2. This is what wisdom does to deliver us, verse 12, to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the the ways of darkness, notice this, who delight in doing evil and rejoice in the perversity of evil, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. And now, the sexual promiscuity aspect, verse 16, to deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress, who flatters with her words, that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, for her house sinks down to death and her tracks lead to the dead. None who go to her return again, nor do they reach the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of good men and keep to the paths of the righteous, for the upright will live in the land and the blameless will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be uprooted from it, including those who involve themselves in a pattern of sexual immorality. Their tracks lead to death. Chapter 5, verse 1. All throughout the Proverbs, Solomon 
And other proverbial writers are saying the same thing. My son, give attention to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge, for the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps take hold of Sheol, She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. Now then, my sons, verse 7, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Don't even go near it, son, or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one and strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. Remember what you are buying. Remember what you are acquiring. Don't give it up so easily. And you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed and you say, how I have hated instruction. And my heart spurned reproof. I've not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. Chapter 6. Verse 20, my son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. There it is again. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is light. And reproofs for discipline are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman. From the smooth tongue of the adulteress, do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. She's hunting for your life. She's hunting for your precious life. And then rhetorically, verse 27, can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? The answer is, of course not. Of course he'll be burned. Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Of course they'll be scorched. So is the one who goes in to his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry, but when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. In other words, if someone is stealing, someone might be able to understand that because he's hungry, because he must eat, because it's biologically necessary. But even though he steals to satisfy his hunger, he's going to have to repent, he's going to have to turn, he's going to have to pay back, he's going to have to give restitution. Everybody understands that. But, verse 32, the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. In other words, you have your own wife. Why are you looking for someone else? He who would destroy himself does it. Commits adultery. Wounds and disgrace he will find. And this very 
very harrowing verse and his reproach will not be blotted out. Lasting reproach. And what happens with the woman's husband? You think he's just going to let you do what you want to do with his wife? Wounds and disgrace he will find. His reproach will will not be blotted out. For jealousy enrages a man. The man who is standing by while you violate his wife, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom. It's not like the guy who's a thief. It's not like he can repay back sevenfold. You violate somebody else's wife and he will not accept any ransom nor will he be satisfied though you give many gifts. Why? Because you violated his wife. This is, this is why Solomon is, is so emotionally involved in warning his son in chapter 23. Don't do this. Chapter 7. Bind this teaching again. On your fingers, verse 3, write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you're my sister, and call understanding your intimate friend, that they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. And here's the, here's the temptation, verse 6. For at the window of my house I looked out through my lattice and I saw among the naive, the undiscerning, and I discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner and he takes the way to her house. That's his first mistake. In the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness, that's the second mistake. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. So she seizes him and kisses him, and with a brazen face she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. Therefore I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. Here's the enticement. Here's the allurement. I've spread my couch with coverings with colored linens of Egypt. I've sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him. At the full moon he will come home. And then again, frighteningly, verse 21, with her many persuasions, much talk, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters chains to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. You say, what will it cost me? Oh, nothing other than your life. Chapter 9, verse 13. 
The woman of folly is boisterous. She is naive and knows nothing. She sits at the doorway of her house on a seat by the high places of the city, calling to those who pass by, who are making their paths straight. You see, they're walking in the straight way. But there's someone who's walking who's naive, verse 16. And she says, whoever is naive, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks understanding, she says... And here's the euphemism for sexual immorality. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Oh, come here to hotel death. Come here. To the naive inn. And he goes right in. And he doesn't realize that it's not a hotel for fun and frolicking, it's the hotel for death. Every guest is a walking dead man. My friends, Proverbs 23:28 says surely she lurks as a robber she's going to steal your soul and increases the faithless among men you know what that means you're trading your faith in God for sexual pleasure You'd rather have sexual gratification as over against your faith in Christ, as over against your belief in Christ, as over against your trust in Christ. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Because her job is to rob you of your soul and to create yet another faithless man. I don't think that's worth it. And Solomon says, Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. Now you know why he brings up the concept of eyes. Because here, the man has an opportunity to put his eyes on the right, on the straight, on the narrow, on the path of righteousness, and his eyes will be forever tempted to look beyond the path so that he sees nothing but a sensuous woman for whom he could have his delights and his caresses and his pleasures. Except, of course, that it will cost him his life and that he'll be robbed and he'll end up being yet another casualty with a shipwrecked faith. There's a second warning that Solomon begins in verse 29 with a series of questions. Who has woe? That is, who has the potential for danger? Who has sorrow? That is, who has angst? Who has contentions? That means, who has quarrelings? Who has complaining? Uh, that means, uh, someone who is bellyaching. Who has wounds without cause? That is, who has bruises? 
uninitiated by them and who has redness of eyes? Who? Rhetorical questions. Who? 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 Here's the answer, verse 30. Those who linger long over wine. That's who has woe. That's who has sorrow. That's who has contentions. That's who has complaining. That's who has wounds without cause. That's who has the redness of eyes. Those who linger long over wine translate drunkenness. Drunkenness. Lingering long over wine equals drunkenness. And the end of verse 30, those who go to taste mixed wine. We could say today in our parlance, mixed drinks. Strong drink, which is forbidden in the Word of God. It may even mean there, mixed wine, that they mixed it with some other substances like spices to make it both more tasty and more potent. You see, even all the way back here and before Solomon's days, there were people who were concocting drinks in which to have a buzz and a potency that gives them exhilaration. We go from sexual gratification to mental intoxication. And ask yourself the question, all right, in life, do I want woe, sorrow, contentions, complainings, Wounds without cause, redness of eyes. Yeah, I'll sign up for that. That's what I was just about to do by joining the frat party. Uh, Anybody want to sign up for woe? Uh, Sign up right here. Anybody wants to be beaten up without cause? Just sign up right here. It's not even logical. It doesn't even make sense. But of course it does to those who linger long over wine, who go to taste the mixed drink, to get a buzz, to get the party going, to grab all the gusto, and look at the warning in verse 31. Do not look on the wine when it is red. There are your eyes again. Solomon says, don't look with your eyes on a woman who is not your wife, and don't look with your eyes on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, and when it goes down smoothly. Oh, it looks so good when it's sparkling there. Oh, that red wine. Oh, I just want a little sip. I just want a little taste. I know my limits. Someone, they they can't tell me how to drink in moderation. I know how to drink in moderation. Oh, it just goes down so smoothly. Can't you see one of the beer commercials in your mind? Oh, the freshness of this taste. Oh, it brings you such happiness, such joy, such friendship. And it looks so good in the cup. Except, of course, verse 32 says, at the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. You know what you should do? I'm not telling you that the Bible says total abstinence 
is commanded. But I am telling you this. When you're tempted to do it, and when you don't know how much is too much for you, or when you think you know what moderation looks like, or when you believe that you can handle it, or any of the above, or anything else, just say to yourself, especially you young people, especially now, especially when you might be tempted to experiment with such things, ask yourself this question, if I do this, what will my life be like 30 years from now? If I do this, will I be able to retain my mental faculties? If I do this, can I stay away from other things from which the drinking parties imply? Or how about this? If at the last it stings like a poisonous snake or it stings like a viper, just say to yourself, why don't I just go ahead and drink some poisonous snake fluid? Not much different for the drunkard. It's going to poison him. I might as well drink it as though it was viper juice. You say, oh no, it it won't affect me. It won't affect me in that way. You don't understand. You're obviously not a drinker. You obviously don't realize that you can do this and none of these things can occur. Well, maybe that's true, but verse 33 says it like this. Your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter perverse things. Again, I can just... Here are the sign-up sheet. Anybody want to say some strange things? Anybody want to look around and hallucinate? That's what drunkenness brings you. Verse 34, You will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea. What does that mean? Well, it could be one of two things. It could be that you are like a person who has his equilibrium so off base that you're like the person who's trying to make his bed in the middle of the ocean. It's going to be pretty rocky. That's what drunkenness brings. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know where you are. You'll be like... The one who lies down in the middle of the sea. Or maybe that's euphemistically saying you're going to die right in the midst of the ocean of your alcohol. You know, as we would say today in our own language, he died in the bottle. Or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. You've seen it and I've seen it. Some crazy fool who goes up in some high place because he's buzzed, he's drunk, he's out of his mind, he don't, doesn't know what he's doing, and he's on a ship, and he crawls right up to the crow's nest, right in the midst of a raging storm. And he thinks he can hold on. Or maybe that's saying... It's like a man who's trying to sleep on a ship 
that's being tossed to and fro. He's up high. He can't figure out a way to get down. He's out of his head and doesn't know what to do. Verse 35. This is incredible. They struck me, but I did not become ill. I mean, I became a living punching bag. They beat me, but I did not know it. Now, please, when the Word of God says something like that, we have to graphically sit up and ask ourselves the question, who wants to be out of their mind in such a condition that you get in a fight and your face is being pummeled and you don't even know it? That's the Bible's way of saying, wake up! Understand the consequences. Look at what you're doing. Look at what it's bringing you. It's bringing you a deformed face. When you wake up the next morning, you're battered and bruised and beaten and you didn't even know how you got in that condition. Isn't that incredible? The Word of God is so graphic. And yet, you'd think the person would say, Okay, enough. I'm going to stop that drinking because look at what it's bringing me. I can't believe the absurdity and the stupidity of my choices. I'm going to put this drunkenness away from me forever. No. The end of verse 35. When shall I awake? When will I get up? And what will I think next? I'll seek another drink. That's the lust of drunkenness. Did you notice also that the Bible nowhere in any of these places that I've read, and certainly in this text, calls this a disease? It's a lust. It's a desire. Now, yes, it does have physical consequences. And yes, it is physically debilitating. And yes, you may even have some help to be strapped down and to be physically weaned off of such things. But the bottom line is this. The mentality of the person that is their responsibility as, the, as, as though when they awake they're just looking for another drink is sin. And don't confine this to Solomon and his perspective. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 5 as we close. Isaiah chapter 5. Listen to the woes of the wicked. Who has woe? Verse 11. Isaiah 5.11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. Their banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp, by tambourine and flute, and by wine. That's the party. Are you coming to my party? We're going to have some liquor there. We're going to have some music. It's going to be great. But they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of His hands.
You know what we should do? As New Covenant believers, as Christians, as those who profess to know Jesus Christ, this is what we should do. Romans chapter 13, verse 13. Don't leave here today without knowing exactly what you should do. Here's what you should do. Romans 13, 13. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Put on Christ, my friends. Put on Christ. Believe in Him. Repent of sexual immorality. You may be here today and you say, my life is awash in sexual immorality. My life is filled with drunkenness. My life is a partying life. My life is filled with those things. And the Word of God comes sharply to you and it says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put Him on. That is, believe in Him. Repent of your sin. Turn to Him. Place your confidence and trust in Him and Him alone. Put Him on and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Let's bow together in prayer. Oh, Father, if it weren't for Your grace, all of us would be involved in all kinds of sins. Even patterns of sin like this, like sexual immorality and drunkenness. Oh, and Your Word is so graphically clear. Don't give Your heart, Your will, my Son, to these things. Give me Your lips and give me Your eyes. Don't give yourself to sexual immorality. Don't give yourself to drunkenness. Oh, Father, I pray that the only solution that is available to any of us is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Oh, Lord, we need Christ. He's the only one who can deliver us from the pattern of our life, our lifestyle. Oh, I pray for the young people in our midst. Oh, I pray as they go off to college. I pray for every high school senior. I pray for every collegian. I pray for every young person who's preparing for those days. I pray for those who are entering into the work world. I pray for all of us. I pray for the modeling of parents to say no to these things themselves so that their children aren't confused by a profession of Christ and yet a dabbling in these things, or maybe even wantonly so. Oh Lord, I pray for grandparents, godly grandparents, who can show this modeling and this example of purity and, and virtue for a period of decades upon decades, so that our people, our young people, will know and see that there is a different way. There is another alternative. You don't have to go to the parties. You don't have to be involved in 
sex and drunkenness in order to be accepted, to belong. You can walk a path of righteousness and be pleasing to your God and to your parents. Oh, Father, I pray it is so. And I pray that we would rejoice as parents with a joy unspeakable that our children are walking in the truth. May it be so. And may our prayer room and may our counseling rooms be filled with people who want help from these devastating sins, sins of their own choosing, sins of their own lusts, but sins which can be forgiven and can be covered by God's wonderful matchless grace. Oh, I pray that it is through Christ and through Him alone, not moral reformation, but spiritual transformation through Christ, in whose name we now come for forgiveness and cleansing. Amen.